Good evening. I'm very happy to see you here and to have this chance to talk. Thank you for your interest. I would like to begin by saying for you a kind of prayer or invocation that a spiritual pupil would say as a kind of entrance to his spiritual path, as a kind of daily prayer and orientation for a spiritually responsible person. Now the original is in German and I have to translate it as I go along. I will just say it first. I wish to unite myself with the all-embracing Holy Spirit. Above everything else I place the Son of Truth. I think it says, above my head I place the Son of Truth. May love stream through all my deeds. I will free my soul from all illusions. I will not allow myself to be confused or overwhelmed by vanity, by appearance, by illusion, by deception. I will be, bring clarity into the world's turmoil. I will give warmth for the nourishment of souls. I will give my best forces for the resurrection of human beings. That's an approximate translation. I would like to say it once more, and I would like to do it like this. I will repeat it slowly, and I will give a little pause between each sentence. And I just ask you to let it resonate within you. And I would like to ask you inwardly to yourself to decide or to have a feeling, how much do I want to go along with that? Is that something I could say to myself or not? Just look at this. I'm not asking you to say yes or no to it. To what extent would I resonate with that? I'll just give you an example before I start. There's the one line, I will free my soul from all illusion. Now I've known people to whom I've said this sentence and when they let it really sink in, they sometimes a part of themselves that does not want to be free from illusion. Now I'm asking, requesting at this moment, that degree of honesty with you. I'm not going to ask you afterwards, this is entirely your private business, how you react to this. But a responsible spiritual student is required to do this, to say this sentence, and thereby to feel the echo inside, do I really want to be free of illusion? Do I really want to be, above all, truthful, for instance? And the point is to see what resonance there is in your soul, what parts of you would prefer to live in a comfortable lie or a comfortable illusion, and gradually to let this light of truth, this will for truth, work inside you. Now by truth, or by the Holy Spirit, we are not referring here to any particular doctrine, to any particular religious group, but to what you yourself can feel is truth, is true, is the true state of affairs, is the reality behind all things. And it's to strengthen this in all parts of our being and to strengthen an attitude in us that feels also connected to the whole 
and wanting to work rightly into our environment that this prayer is said. For someone who would like to be in a real contact with higher forces of guidance, with higher masters and so on, it is essential to have this absolute truthfulness through and through, otherwise you will be deceived. To the extent that we can find honesty within ourselves, to that extent we are not open to manipulation, to deception. And when it comes to higher things, to higher energies, to other spheres above and beyond our normal perception, we could be very easily manipulated because we don't have the same control as we have over our physical environment. So I'm going to say it again and I'm inviting you to let it resonate within you. But I'm not going to ask you afterwards, this is entirely up to you, how you want to react to it. But if later you have any problem with it and you'd like to clear that problem with me, you're welcome to ask, of course. I will unite myself with the all-encompassing Holy Spirit. Above my head I place the Son of Truth. Through all my words and deeds there streams love. I will free my soul from all illusion. I will not allow myself to be confused or overwhelmed by vanity, by appearance, by illusion or by deception, by lies. I will bring clarity into the world turmoil, into the stream of world events. I will give warmth for the prospering of other souls, other beings. I will bring my best forces for the resurrection, or if you like, for the higher development and prospering of humanity. I hope you can feel a resonance, a response, whether positive, negative, or a bit of both. Something in you responds to that. And I want to emphasize once more, if we wish, to come to a contact with higher forces and we wish not to be deceived, we must cultivate this attitude of truthfulness, honesty, not wanting to be comforted by pleasant illusions, and having a good feeling of responsibility. I can contribute, and as a human being, I should contribute to the general welfare. That's what it's all about, and it's a kind of cleansing of the soul for the person who wishes to aspire to higher knowledge. Now I'd like to dwell on this inner attitude because it's absolutely crucial. There is so much today of spiritual knowledge or so-called spiritual knowledge spread about. There's a very, very widespread activity that goes under the name of channeling, which we will have to look at a little more closely and a very great deal of knowledge that is so-called given out through this channeling. A lot of this knowledge is very contradictory. And that may also first make cause us to ask, what is the value of this channeling? What is channeling? Now I've noticed it's a very extraordinary fact that a lot of people say, I don't want a master, I don't need higher guidance, I don't want a guru, I want to find my own path. 
Now as such, that's a healthy impulse. I would certainly, to a large extent, go along with that. I personally do not want anybody else telling me what I have to do or telling me what is the truth in such a way that I cannot experience it myself. So human beings today, if they are healthy, have this feeling. Don't show me a master. Don't give me any dogmas. Don't tell me how it is. I want to find out. On the other hand, these very same people will rush to any clairvoyant, any medium, or will lay themselves on the ground, and or they'll go to a reincarnation therapist or whatever, and whatever comes up from the subconscious depths of their soul, whatever images, forms, or something come into their consciousness, they'll accept that as a kind of authoritative message from up above. Suddenly, they're quite willing to let go of the responsibility of knowledge and give it to whatever comes without their conscious participation. Because, as you said, the intellect stands in the way, the ego stands in the way, I have to get rid of all these, just open myself, become an open book, and it will all fall into me, and whatever comes into me is true. Now this is actually the state of affairs today. I have only looked, I must say, at one book on channeling, but I have noticed that in that book it is recommended you lie down and you relax. Now if you lie down, as we do for sleep, you connect yourself with certain currents of the earth that help then to rebuild your body. That is why we lie down for sleep. We know well, we no longer have the trouble of holding our body up, but in the prone position we can more easily receive forces from nature, forces from life that build up our body. But in the lying position we cannot, or with only very great difficulty, have that clarity of consciousness whereby we can distinguish truth from falsehood, whereby we can be in true clarity. If you want to be in real clarity, in real freedom of decision, you basically need the upright posture, where you can connect yourself with that force in the cosmos that creates the upright, that force which holds every wall upright. Build a wall slightly crooked and it will fall over. A wall has to be built so that it's absolutely vertical. It has to find this axis which is a line of force and which holds up our houses, if you like, our buildings. I'm being very simple now, but sometimes we ignore very simple facts. That same line of force is the line of force which will connect you with a clear self-consciousness, with what we call the central I am consciousness. That which you are trying to defend when you reject all masters and guidance and gurus. And it's a natural and right attribute of the human being that I want to know for myself. Somewhere in me I know that I am a responsible being and I am responsible for what I accept is true or not. Now anybody could come, I could come and say I am God Almighty, I am God's messenger, I am God's prophet, what not. And if I've got it well fixed up I can perhaps be very convincing. But it's you that has to decide that. You with your consciousness where you are. It doesn't matter how loud my voice is, 
how convincing it is you that makes that decision to follow me or not. I may be very clever and I may manipulate your consciousness. But in the last resort, if you are centered in this axis and you invite that ray of clarity and consciousness, I cannot in the end deceive you. You try that. Consult in yourself what capacities you have for judging the truth or the falsehood of anything. Now I'd like to give you a very simple day-to-day example. Excuse me, I said this before this weekend, but it makes the matter very clear. We were working in our workshop on Saturday on speech, the way we speak, what lives in the human voice. And suddenly people in the group began to notice, yes, there's an awful lot that you can hear in the way somebody speaks. And then I gave an example. I said how long ago I needed an apartment, a flat. I was living in Stuttgart and I put in an advertisement in the paper, English lady, single, is seeking an apartment, telephone number. Now that was very foolish of me, of course, because then I got all kinds of undesirable phone calls people who were offering me everything else except an apartment or offering me an apartment on terms that I didn't want and um, but what I discovered through this was I just picked up the phone and whoever was on the other end just had to say two words and I knew straight away it's one of those don't listen to that fellow and I heard it from his voice he hadn't yet got to the point of saying anything bad but just his voice told me this fellow is honest this fellow isn't Now, I would say that we all, if we're reasonably healthy and honest people who don't go about trying to deceive other people, we all have this faculty. If it's put to the test, we do have something in us which can tell us the truth. Now, I had some friends in India, excuse me spending a long time on this, but this is really crucial. I had some nice friends in India long ago when I first went there. They were rather the hippie type. But, yes, they took a few drugs and things, but on the whole, they were looking for God. They were looking for spirituality. They wore white clothes, and they wanted to live in a new way. They didn't have much idea how to do this, but still, their basic intentions were good. They were looking for God. They met an Indian man. I think he might have been a Maharaja or something, who had a big family, and this man succeeded in getting out of my friends all of their money that they had saved up for, say, two or three years. Bit by bit, he squeezed from them all their money by telling them some some story about how his family did not love him, about how he was trying to lead a spiritual life, but his family wouldn't let him, and he just needed another 2,000 that he could do so-and-so and so-and-so. He got all of their money, and then he said to them, you go to a, a place in the mountains 300 miles away, and there you will find my house. You can go and stay in my house. The servants are there. They will welcome you. They will give you everything you want to feed. You can stay there as long as you like. They went there, of course. They found the place. It was shut up. No one was there. Except an old servant, ex-servant, who told how this man had been deceiving people like this for years and had accumulated enormous debts in many, many major hotels in India and so on and so forth. So then they came back and started saying, he was a black magician. He deceived us. How could we have been so deceived? And I felt like saying to these dear people, he didn't have to be a black magician. He just had to play on your love of illusion. 
you know, your beautiful, illusory picture you've built of the world and your, you know, wanting to escape from reality. He only had to play on that and it was easy to draw. I didn't say that to him, but I could have done. People who cultivate beautiful illusions can easily fall prey to such deceptions. Now, I know many other stories like this of people who've been deceived, who've been robbed of large sums of money, especially it happens in India. Indians are very good at this, but uh, working their way around naive Westerners. I know another person, for instance, just recently, just in the last weeks, very nice person. I felt the catch with this person was that he lived a little bit in his own world. He didn't, doesn't so easily listen to other people, relate to other people, Otherwise, he's a very, very fine person with the best um, impulses. And I feel that this person who gave him, this Indian who gave himself out to be a yoga and a yogi and a spiritual master, managed to get all the money out of him simply because something in this man blocked the way to that center in us where we can recognize the truth. I'm not saying that I have never been deceived, I have also, we've all been deceived, perhaps somewhere, but we all have somewhere in us the possibility to feel, to know the truth. God is not so cruel that he has left us totally defenseless against all kinds of con men and uh, spiritual con men and all the rest of it. Somewhere, buried deep in the human being, is a small organ, which in spiritual science we call the sore, S-O-R, and it is a kind of extract of cosmic law and this is somewhere deep in the heart of each person but to get to that, to allow it to resonate you have to be honest yourself you have to be honest with yourself, you have to free yourself from illusions so we often find the case where a very intelligent person a very learned person can be deceived, they can fall for something like let us say Scientology which is a very, very clever mixture of occult knowledge and pure manipulation and all the rest of it. Whereas a very simple person, not very intelligent, but has lived very honestly, very clearly, sees the matter quite clearly. Or sometimes, uh, which humbles us very much, a child can point directly at the truth where the adults are swimming in God knows what. There's that in us which can know what is true if we really want to. I call it SOAR, S-O-R, SOAR. Is that a word I've heard of? You've heard it? No, I haven't. No, it's from the cosmic tradition, it's not well known, but it is this God-given conscience, or God-given, more accurately, extract of cosmic law. It's like a kind of spiritual, energetic sphere in us, in the heart. And that's given to every human being. But as the human being develops and comes more and more to a clear I am consciousness, the I am itself takes over this function. Now I have been speaking this weekend a great deal about the ray of the I am. I've already said that to come to this central clarity of being, clarity of consciousness, one needs to connect with this central axis which goes through the upright and passes right through us 
and in this axis passes through what we call the ray of spiritual light, the ray of diamond light. Actually it's an etheric ray, I'll have to say more about this tomorrow, but it is connected directly with the sun and every human being is connected with the sun through this ray. This is also given to the human being and especially was strengthened by Jesus Christ in his incarnation 2000 years ago but also by other higher beings that came. This has been strengthened. Yet, we also have to activate it. It's a bit like saying we've all been given a brain, but we have to use our brain. If we don't, the brain will die away. It won't be much use. But, so the ray has been given, but it is for us to activate it. We place ourselves in our central axis, feeling this. And the more our consciousness can center itself here, the more we come to clarity and to inner stillness. And this is the real place of meditation. True, within this axis we can center ourselves in one or other of the chakras, but the only real and true meditation is when we are anchored in this central axis. Otherwise, we are opening ourselves to any kind of influence. Now, a problem with channeling is that one opens a kind of central passageway but in such a way that in actual fact the ray doesn't enter in. If you're lying, it can't actually enter in. And anything else can come in and impinge on your field of awareness and because it hasn't come from your own consciousness and because it hasn't come from your intellect you think it's a message from some higher being. Now, I'm not equating the intellect at all with the I am. The intellect can also be just as much a barrier. But we use the intellect as our dominant mode of consciousness. So we tend to think that uh, we just have to let the intellect go, which is quite true. But through the I am ray, you go beyond the intellect to pure awareness, pure consciousness. So this is the consciousness out of which, the only consciousness out of which we can hope to approach a higher reality, a higher being, with a feeling of freedom, of ability to judge whether it is true or not. And any true master or higher being will only communicate with you in this way. If people receive communications via channeling, I pretty well have to say it's likely to be false. And there are plenty of entities more intelligent than the human being who are very happy to tell you all you want if you choose to channel. If you lie down and open yourself and you get the message that the Archangel St. Michael is communicating with you, you have no means whatsoever of proving that that is the Archangel Michael. Or, by the same token, you want to contact, let's say, Rudolf Steiner, who's now presumably in the spiritual world, or perhaps he's reincarnated, <coughs> we don't know. Via channeling, you may think you're getting messages from Rudolf Steiner. You have no proof whatever that that is who or what you are contacting. It's like picking up the telephone and who is at the other end, they can say they're anybody but how do you know? Now this is the situation we're in today because there are many entities close to the earth 
who are trying to confuse human beings and they're very intelligent, they'll tell you a lot of things that are true or that could be true but they'll infiltrate their own message what they are really wanting to do is to take your energy your light energy, your consciousness energy so they want to keep you happy so long as you are receiving these messages and sending your devotion, your consciousness to whatever it is you think you're channeling they can feed off your light energy and that's what's going on today in, a, in the etheric energetic sphere around the earth it's like a fog that's lying over the earth and to come to true spiritual communion to true meditation you have to pierce through that fog and there is one thing that can pierce through that fog and that is your own I am the force of your own inner kernel yes, I hope that's alright that was a long speech now I want to speak about guidance why do we want guidance? do we want guidance? or would we rather trust our own wisdom? it's a very good question because there is never there's something in us that would just like to be told we'd like to go to the next clairvoyant or to a fortune teller or to somebody else to tell us something about ourselves and we should notice this tendency in us or we go to a Tavataro reading or whatever you like there is that in us that would like to be told about the mystery of our own being about where we should go, who we should marry uh, who, what our previous incarnations were there's this great question we have about who are we? what are we? what should I do next? now we must watch this tendency do I want to be in the truth or not? now my own teacher who's quite capable of telling you what your previous incarnations were now that's a statement from me which you can believe or not believe but uh, I'm speaking to your responsible sense of judgment I'm not trying to convince you but my own teacher for instance rarely gives this kind of information out because he finds it is far better that people make their own way towards it he might give a hint here and there if for instance he thinks you need to know about a previous incarnation because you're dealing with a problem that originated in a previous incarnation then he might give you a hint or in rare cases he might actually tell you but much better you find your own way to that now there's another reason also when we leave our physical body when we die and the physical body is laid in the earth we shall no longer have available our physical brain our nervous system and what we have learnt or taken in and accepted merely with the brain we lose at death so however many books you have read however many spiritual facts you have been told if they simply live in your intellect you will lose that after death but what you have taken in and discovered yourself or have heard and then researched yourself so that it becomes a part of your whole being that you retain what you have really deeply understood and taken deep into deeper parts of you than simply the intellect that remains with you in that essence which leaves the body and goes on to further incarnations that's a very complex subject but simply put that is so 
what simply lives as mere idea that disappears within a few days because very quickly you lose human language. And what is simply there in the form of human language of words that goes. But what you know deep inside, right into your kernel, that remains, that does not get lost. Therefore my teacher says, I prefer you to find out for yourself and I just show you a direction you can take. And we have noticed with our own children, if we've had children, especially teenage children, they don't want to be told what they should do, what they should not do. They very much want to learn by experience. We only have to hope that the experiences won't be too devastating. But can you see this? And this is more and more a quality of human beings. They want to learn from experience and a good teacher will lead the pupil towards experiences so that they can learn. And a living master, I met, I had the good fortune to work with a living master who's incarnated on the earth, also works in this way. Now this was not always so. Um, human beings thousands and thousands of years ago were in a more childlike state and everything went much more by direct guidance, by direction from outside and especially wise king or high priest or so would give directions to the mass of humanity and they would obey because they were not yet at that level of evolution where they could really judge for themselves but gradually over the many thousands of years of human evolution human beings have progressed towards more independence and that is what is intended for a human being essentially is one who is free who can decide, who can know for him or herself. So nowadays, if we're looking for higher guidance, if we feel that we need it, it's very good to look for this not from angels, archangels, higher beings, because they live in quite another consciousness, first of all, from us, and their consciousness expands over a very wide field but doesn't in quite the same way focus on everyday details. And our guardian angel is there, as it were, to protect this human being until he or she becomes available to work out of his or her own forces. So there is a general withdrawing of the angelic forces as the human beings become more capable of taking things into their own hands. So if we seek guidance, the best is to seek guidance from those human beings who have ascended from the human state to a higher state. We speak about ascended masters and that's quite correct. There are ascended masters. There are many human beings who over the thousands of years have gone ahead in their evolution and have awakened to a higher form of existence certain developments have happened in their organism, in their brain, in their whole being, in their energies, that they are at a higher level than other human beings. But they have attained this through going through the experience of this world. Whereas angels, archangels, archai and all these have attained their state by going through other worlds. An angel has not lived on the earth as a human being but an ascended master has 
and he's incarnated many, many, many times. And we have ascended masters who reached their masterhood thousands of years ago. Jesus was one of them. Jesus who bore then the divine essence in him, and we can call him a divine incarnation. And there are others who attained their masterhood recently, in this century. Rudolf Steiner was one. And there are masters who attained masterhood long ago, but continually return to earth to learn again in each incarnation, in each century, the problems of that particular time and to attain their masterhood over and over again, but in respect of this particular period of time, because they are, as it were, forging the way for the human beings. It's a bit like climbing a mountain. If you read mountaineering books, and I have a very good friend who's a mountaineer, and you have a team of, say, four or six or ten or twenty people in a group that want to climb Mount Everest, let us say. Now, only one or two of those will get to the peak, or they will lead, they will find the way, they will find the foothold, they will perhaps fix the ropes, and the others follow after. Now, like this, the ascended masters are beings who have made the steps towards enlightenment, they've made the steps of human evolution, they've gone before us, and they know the way. And if it's a master who's done this just in this century, in this time, in this world, he knows particularly the problems of this world, of this time, of this century. Now that's the value of an ascended master. That's why they're so important at this moment, and that's why they can be valuable to us. And I'll say something about what they are, and later I will come on to how we can communicate with them. A master is one who has received the ray of the I Am in such a way that is permanently and totally present, and has transformed his whole being until it is in harmony with this divine energy, which I call I am. So his whole being is purified and lives at a higher level. His energy sheaths, his physical body, all this is different from ours. And he has different and higher capacities than we do. It is not terribly well known, but the Count of Saint-Germain, for instance, who was a master of this type, who lived in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. He lived for 200 years. That is well documented. And he lived in Europe, travelled the whole of Europe, travelled between the uh, royal houses of Europe. Um, he could, for instance, just disappear. You couldn't confine him anywhere. He would say, well, goodbye. He would shut the door. You would come in, open the door again. He's not there. Why? because he knows how to dissolve his physical body and reassemble it somewhere else. Now this is a capacity that a human being on this higher level gains. This is known in India, in Tibet, among the enlightened people. I don't, I don't want to try and entice you with these higher forces, but this is an example. I have to give you an example of some kind. Christ built an archetype for the human beings of this kind of physical body what is called in anthroposophy the resurrection body and it is this we're talking about 
and it is intended that we all evolve towards this level through the course of many, many, many incarnations. The greatness of Jesus Christ was that he placed this archetype for human beings. He made it available by doing it himself. He made it accessible as a possibility for all human beings. Not for Christians, but for everybody. It's nothing to do with a, a religion. But this is the capacity of a higher master. Apparently the master Peter Dunov, who lived in Bulgaria in the last century, and I would love to talk about him later as an example of a master, he occasionally used to demonstrate this just so that his pupils would understand this as possible. He would suddenly vanish, as if I were to vanish from this spot now, and appear at the front door. I'm not going to do it, I can't do it, so it's all right. But a master has attained a higher level of being human and the essential is that his I am consciousness works all the time in all parts of his being. That is, he never sleeps. He may lay down and close his eyes and rest the body, but he is fully and totally conscious in all spheres. And that is an exact definition of a master. Now a lot of people call themselves masters today, but they don't have this capacity. I went to one lady who works in Rishikesh and she works over Europe, she's held as a master, she's an American lady, and she has good intentions and she tries to do a good work and perhaps she does do a good work, she has a lot of disciples. But I went to her at one point and I asked her a question, a very practical question, I won't say what it was. And I realized that she did not know how to answer. Now that's fine. I don't expect everybody to answer my questions. But if the good lady calls herself master, then she should know what this means. Even the Dalai Lama does not call himself a master. Although he's a very high being and held in the highest respect by Tibetans and carries an enormous responsibility and has a lot of spiritual capacities, but he has the humility and the honesty not to call himself master. He's a good human being and has many capacities, but he knows he does have not attained the full master consciousness. He's honest enough to know that, and that makes him a very valuable person because whatever comes from him is out of the truth, is out of compassion and so on. And good luck to him. One reason why he hasn't attained masterhood is because although he is an incarnation of the previous Dalai Lama, he has not had the, he, there was not the time or the capacity to give him the right training in this life. Due to the political situation in Tibet and due to the fact that his masters perhaps did not always know how to bring out the latent capacities in him, he has not attained everything that he should have attained, but he knows this, and he does not deceive himself, and as such, he can nevertheless work a great deal of good in the world. Far more than those people who call themselves master think that they are master, but actually are not that. If they don't wake up sometimes and realize the truth, they will land up somewhere not very good. But this one lady I mentioned, the good lady probably doesn't know anymore. She's not doing this out of a wish to deceive people or to get customers. It's better. Well, we could go into that. We'll leave that aside now. 
and go on to what is a master. A master is one totally permeated by the I am consciousness. I could say by the Christ consciousness, or if I was a Hindu, I could say by the Shiva consciousness. Now, when a master attains this level, he wins the right to live permanently in the spiritual world. He does not have to incarnate anymore on this troubled and difficult earth. He is let off the hook, so to speak. But, he can choose to come back out of a sense of responsibility and out of compassion to serve humanity. Now, among the Buddhists, especially among the later Mahayana Buddhism, there is what they call the Bodhisattva vow I don't know how many of you know of this where the Bodhisattva, the one who is ready for enlightenment ready to be proclaimed Buddha that is ready to ascend into the spiritual world and can be free of this difficult earth planet says as it were I renounce final enlightenment I renounce Nirvana until all beings on the earth have also attained it I place myself, in other words, at the service of the others. What I have attained, I now place at the service of the others. If we take our image of the mountain climber, the mountain climber who reaches the peak of the mountain can forget about those behind, or he can also help them up. He can turn back and help them also to come to the mountain peak. Now, in the Christian esotericism, we have an exact equivalent of this, and it is written and described very beautifully and very vividly by Rudolf Steiner. At a certain point, the spiritual pupil who has advanced far on the spiritual path meets a being who we call the guardian of the threshold. In fact, there are two guardians. In the first guardian, a very terrible being confronts him. But this terrible being is actually the embodiment of all the things in the pupil that he has still not transformed. It's an embodiment of all his remaining faults, his remaining defects in his character. And the pupil has to face this and has to say, yes, I see that I am still far from perfection and I want to, uh, I want to transform myself. I'll give you an example now of a woman I knew who was very generous and very good and gave a lot of money to people and looked after a lot of people but somewhere deep in her and people could sense this in her she had a bit of sense of calculation if I'm good to so and so they should also be generous to me you know there was a bit of inner economics that does happen with all of us I'll, I'll be good to the rest of the world but they'd jolly well better be good to me a figure of an old woman who had a very mean and calculating expression on her face and this horrified her and she recognized it as herself and she recognized it as an embodiment of a hidden quality that had been covered up by her on the surface generosity now she was capable of seeing this it's a blessing when we see these things because then you can take the resolve I want to change this I want to transform this I could elaborate on this subject, I'll leave it for the moment. If you have questions, I can come back and answer it. But now, when the pupil has been able to face this guardian and to say yes to what has been revealed, 
Yes, I see that I still have work to do. I am not totally purified. I resolve to work on myself until every part of my being corresponds to that divine seed which was given me by God, the I Am. That I become totally permeated with the truth, with love, with purity and so on and so forth. Then, after a time, he meets the greater guardian. And the greater guardian appears to him in the form of a divine being of light. For the person in the Christian tradition, this would be the Christ, the great archetype of the human being. For a person in another tradition, it would appear in that form, which for them is the divine archetype. And this being says, you have won the right to permanent residence, if you like, in the spiritual world, in higher spheres. You no longer have to go back to earth. You can remain in bliss, in blessedness, here, in the spirit. But, look upon me, look upon my light form, and see how, nevertheless, I am infinitely more sublime than you. I am infinitely more truth and love and so on. If you want to attain to my state, then you must now renounce your place in heaven, so to speak, renounce your right to permanent residence in this blissful world and return to the physical world and bring all that you have attained in the physical world, all your powers, all your capacity, all your knowledge, and place it at the service of humanity. Because, he said, all human beings, all beings entered into earth evolution together and so you should feel now responsible of helping all your fellow creatures to rise up to the same level. It is not a question of your personal liberation, your personal bliss and ecstasy, but it is a question of the whole, the whole of humanity, the whole of planet earth. Something like this is the dialogue. Now my teacher again describes the Rosicrucian path but in other terms and again he describes three states of masterhood. The first state is climbing the mountain, reaching this state of masterhood. The second is a phase of divine union with, the, with God. And the third stage is the decision to make a sacrifice, to turn back to the earth and to come and serve. Now there are many human beings who have attained masterhood and among them quite a number who have taken this decision to return. Of course if they do this, this is not perhaps specifically said to them, but if they do this it enables them to rise to much much higher levels in the spiritual world than someone who just arrives there and decides to stay there and seek his own bliss. If you take this path of sacrifice you nevertheless take a path that leads you infinitely higher with the whole of humanity not just you alone so a master who has returned returns very often and experiences earthly life from the point of view of the different cultures and the different centuries he may incarnate in India, in America, in China he may choose to incarnate wherever he wants to work and experience that culture and experience the problems of those times and undertake often a very practical task 
and he may remain, he or she may remain totally unknown as a master. Masterhood may be totally concealed, but he will still be working, doing his work, helping in one way or another humanity forward. And that is how an ascended master, a true master in Christ, we can say, a true master who is serving God, works. So, among these ascended masters, at any period in time, twelve of them form a kind of council that run the affairs of earth. Now this circle of twelve can vary, it changes. But this circle of twelve carry in um Auftrag, I think in German. Yes, uh, commissioned by God, so to speak, to help run the affairs of earth. This council of twelve direct the affairs of the earth. And their true dwelling place is in this sphere of higher etheric forces around and in the earth, which we call Shambhala. I spoke of that last time. The spiritual kingdom around and in the earth, Shambhala, is the real home of masters and ascended beings. And among these, the circle of the twelve govern the affairs of earth. Rudolf Steiner speaks of this in one book, The East and the Light of the West. He speaks of the twelve bodhisattvas around the crowd. Now, if I start to describe this, it begins to sound like a fairy tale because I have to describe in physical terms something that is not physical. I talked about this last time, so I'll just say now, in a figurative way, you can imagine a central city or a central castle. The Grail Castle is a kind of archetype of this. And in the center of this is, as it were, a fountain, a fountain of life. And this fountain is the fountain of Christ. This is the life energy, the divine stream that streams into the earthly sphere. And the twelve masters each carry a portion of this, of this stream of cosmic energy and allow it to pass through themselves. My teacher used to place in the center of the room when he had a meeting of the school that he ran at that time about 70 or 80 people would come together and he called it the School of the White Spring referring to this stream of spiritual energy that is the basic divine nourishment for the earth and its central incoming place was the spiritual center of the earth which we call Shambhala which we actually call, yes, we could have called it a kind of grail castle and he used to place in the center a table, a kind of altar and there would be a light in the middle, a big candle with a flame and round about would be sometimes he would put eight, but usually he would put eight, not twelve, but eight wine glasses and each of these wine glasses would be a different colour and they'd be filled with water now the idea was to represent that the water is the same in all of them but because of the glass it appears a different colour now the white light or the white spring or the white divine energy is the one light. But through the different masters they carry as it were a different aspect of this light which can be represented in terms of a colour. So part of popular esotericism is quite correct when it speaks about the seven or the eight rays 
and designates them by colour and that there is a master of each ray that is quite correct but who these masters are that is mostly total garbage that is absolutely untrue <coughs> and very confusing if you start to believe in it but each ascended master becomes a kind of vessel for a part of this divine light and represents that particular aspect of it and as it were filters it to earth because this spiritual energetic sphere around the earth and permeating the earth this higher kingdom that we call Shambhala has the task to as it were receive and filter all the cosmic energies so that they are suitable to the earth even our physical atmosphere around the earth is a kind of filter we know that, we know about ozone holes and how dangerous it is for the earth if this filter is broken anywhere if there's a hole in the atmosphere and cosmic energies could stream in that human beings would not be able to endure there is such a hole over New Zealand and uh, people you know, say don't expose yourself too much to the sunlight you could get cancer it's the ultraviolet that comes in because there have been holes blown in the protective ozone layer now in a similar way but on a more spiritual level the whole of Shambhala is a kind of protective atmosphere around the earth so that everything that streams in from the cosmos is filtered and adjusted if you like to the earth frequency and so the divine, the basic divine ray which they also call the spring ish streams in to this holy center in the earth and from there is as it were distributed rightly, filtered through the, nowadays the twelve ascended masters in earlier times it would have been higher beings angelic beings but for some at least two thousand years perhaps more there have been ascended masters sitting in this position with the colored rays each one a bearer of a ray or an energy I wonder whether you'd like a little pause and whether we would sing something um, maybe we'll do that because I would like you to be fresh to take in what I am saying We'll do it like this. I'll ask you to hum a tone. I'll give you the tone. And I will sing a little melody. And this little melody is called a sound seal. It embodies the qualities of one of these rays. It embodies, if you like, a color. Or this spiritual energy that we designate by a color. Or this aspect of the white light, the white diamond light that is refracted into a colour. Let's do that for a moment and then I'll carry on. Um. Oh, oh, oh. 
is embodied a certain energy, a certain atmosphere, a certain quality. Perhaps even brings to mind a feeling of a certain colour. I don't know. I don't know whether I should ask you. I, these two here over here are not allowed to answer because they've heard it before. But the rest of you, if you have a feeling of an atmosphere, a quality or a colour, you are invited to say. I have to tell you the answer is that it is green. Green. It is green. Yes. But it has, with this green, it has a certain earth quality. It is very related to nourishment, giving creatures on earth the right nourishment, the right light substance. And as such, if somebody felt a kind of earthy energy or something with the depth, that would have a certain justification. It also has a certain lightness, tenderness, transparency, because it is that green above all that wants to encourage growth, if you like a spring green. It is a motherly quality that wants to nourish her children, that has, as it were, ten tenderness for all her children. And we know that green, green meadows, for instance, give us a feeling of peace and of stability. They don't incite us to very dynamic action. And there's something about green that also tends to move in a more horizontal plane. If you're an artist, you know this. You know the effects of colors. <coughs> and there's something stable and horizontal about green, something that spreads in a horizontal and a very calm way. I'd like to come back to the subject of green and the master that is particular bearer of this energy, but maybe I'll try one more out on you just for fun. We didn't do too badly on that one. complementary aura. 
you see the blue flame around the around the ray. The green ray has yes, a kind of pink, rose pink, a light red complementary aura. I won't say that indigo for the green ray was way off because there is a certain relationship. Sometimes these rays cooperate with each other and for certain things in, uh, indigo and green do get together. The indigo plant actually does give a green under some circumstances, a kind of dark green or grey green or grey blue or grey blue violet. It's a mysterious twilight kind of colour which on the whole people sum up as a kind of dark blue, a kind of dark grey blue. But it can be a kind of grey violet, it can be a kind of grey green, a deep sea colour. And you perhaps see a pure indigo in storm clouds, very beautiful often. If you look at heavily laden rain clouds, you'll get a, an experience of indigo. But let's come back to that. We've got now the gold-orange ray, the, which they call the golden ray, but it is a kind of yellow-orange. Yes, now I wanted to emphasize that an enlightened master, who especially if he is in the circle of twelve, incarnates regularly on the earth in order to gather the typical experiences of that time and to go through in himself the typical difficulties of that time, to work them through in his own organism, so that he can then lead the human beings, help them really in a relevant way uh, for that time. Perhaps here it would be good to have a very concrete example, so I'll take the golden ray. The bearer of the golden ray was, and I'm not sure if he still is, but he was, the master Peter Dunov, who lived in Bulgaria from 1864 till 1944. Rudolf Steiner knew him, knew of him, and when somebody once came and asked him about Peter Dunov, Rudolf Steiner is reported to have said simply, he is preparing something very important for the sixth epoch, for the future. Now, for those who know Rudolf Steiner's designation of the epochs, we would have counted ourselves then as in the fifth epoch, and the sixth epoch probably, possibly, corresponds to what in New Age is known as the age of Aquarius. But the essential thing is, it is the age when humanity rises to a new level of brotherhood, of community. This is what Peter Dunoff was working for, and as bearer of the golden ray, he was the bearer of divine love and brought especially into his work on earth the impulse of brotherly love. I have to say brotherly or sisterly love. In German they have a word Geschwister, brother-sister. But to help human beings towards seeing every other human being or every other creature on earth as the brother or the sister. He brought teachings of higher community and he brought this into the Bulgarian culture. He lived right into communist times, the Second World War. He was a very beautiful human being. He had a very beautiful face. I don't know a great deal about his life, but I know and we have met some of his pupils, some of the descendants of his movement. He died in 1944. 
and he used to have a kind of community center in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, which was called Iskre, which meant sunrise. And he was, as it were, preparing a new sunrise for humanity, and his teachings all centered around the creation of brotherly love and coming to an epoch where the whole society would be based on love and no longer on fear as it is today. And he had a beautiful habit of going up into the mountains, the Rila Mountains in Bulgaria. Bulgaria is a small mountainous country and there's a beautiful mountain range, the Rila Mountains. In this mountains are seven lakes near to each other and he would go up to this region every summer and spend several months there. He would camp in a tent and thousands and thousands of his followers would go up there, bring their tents and live with him in the summer. And every day he would lead them up the highest mountain peak, a mountain peak called Musala, and every day they would greet the sunrise. And this was one of the things he specially cultivated in his school, was the devotion to the rising sun, and especially to the first ray that would appear over the horizon. And he said there was the greatest healing power in this ray of the sun, but he also said that the sun is our great teacher of universal love. The sun shines constantly for every being, shines nourishment on the whole earth, on the good and on the evil, and waits patiently, lets everybody make their experiences, but continues to give nourishment until all human beings awaken to truth and love. The sun is our great teacher of love. And so his school and his great pupil, also Bulgarian, Omran Mikhail Ivanov, further cultivated this. Uh, Omran Michael Ivanov died in 1986. He then left Bulgaria at the direction of his master and came to France in 1937. And there he founded what is known as the White Brotherhood. But the White Brotherhood has nothing to do with the white race. This is a misunderstanding that sometimes arises. The white is the white light of Christ that contains all colors. And he called his movement the White Brotherhood. It still exists and has its main center, I think it's somewhere in the south of France, but also near Paris. They still publish the writings of Umran Mikhail Ivanov, who is also a great master, but as far as I know, well, I have my own views about him, but he's not designated as one of the masters bearing one of the color rays. There are eight masters that are known to carry to bear one of these colors but there are four masters who are not named and we don't know what the function is so I better not say anymore because I really don't know about Umrav Mikhail Ivanov except that he was a very great master and uh, he did this work in France during the time of the Second World War and afterwards I can tell you more about him perhaps later if you're interested but uh, Peter Dunov ran his spiritual school and it was open in a way to the general public he gave regular lectures regular teachings those that wanted to work more intensively came and lived in his center or came and visited him very often or spent several months with him up in the mountains in Rila. he did that until the communists uh, 
stopped him, prevented him. In his centre, on the outskirts of Sofia, he used to run a free dining room for all hungry people. He developed very much the cult of eating together, the sacred meal, if you like. The disciples would come together, they would eat very pure, very simple food, they would eat together in silence. Uh, Michael Ivanov's people also cultivated this, in that by doing this, you come to a deeper relationship to what you're eating. You take in the nourishment in a different way and you become aware of the spiritual activity that is going on around you while you are doing this work of transforming earthly substance into your own spiritual and soul substance inside you. And it is said that by, if we cultivate this way of eating, this is also one of the secrets really, the true meaning of communion in the church, you gradually transform your own physical substance into something higher and you gradually learn to be able to live with very, very little food. So that was Peter Dunov. In this circle of twelve, one of them is appointed, chosen by the twelve, to be the king of the epoch. That is, he carries the main responsibility for the whole of earth evolution and he carries that energy which is the central energy. Now in our time, this is the violet ray born by the Master, known very often as Saint-Germain, also as Christian Rosenkreutz, and in our time as my own Master, Gideon von Tauber. <coughs> there are many fake Saint-Germains and there are many people who claim that they are channeling Saint-Germain. But I can tell you from the mouth of Saint-Germain that is not the case. He does not channel, but he does sometimes spiritually communicate with people. So some of these spiritual communications, supposedly from Saint-Germain, are genuine and others are not. Uh, Saint-Germain, beloved disciple? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was Saint John, the beloved disciple, the one among the twelve who was most able to receive fully the I am of Christ, the divine I am, the teaching of Christ. I spoke of that in my yes. very first lecture here, yes. No, they don't, and the green ray at the moment, or in the last circle that I heard about, was carried by a woman. But it is amazing at the moment that most of them are men, and yet a woman can be a master. I think the reason why it's so often been men till now is because this is my own opinion only, is that it's often been easier for a masculine organism to forge his way on earth and to bear these very, very high-powered energies right into the earthly body. But it would be very nice to tell you about this woman master because it's a very, very interesting story. It was a woman who was incarnated in the 12th century and her name was Irmgard Dusak and she was active in the Qatar movement. She was one of the leading lights of the Qatars, the Qatars you would say in English I suppose. I don't know how many of you know anything about the Qatars. This esoteric, well I won't say esoteric community, they were that, but they were communities, villages, settlements, who were 
who had freed themselves from church dogma and were really trying to live according to the true principles of Jesus Christ. Now it's not generally known what their innermost teaching was and what their core really was. There are lots of books about the Cathars, but essentially they carried the hidden initiatic wisdom. They carried the true Christianity that went from Jesus to St. John they were bearers of the highest spiritual teachings, as were also the Templars. I spoke about this in other lectures. Those who come through the esoteric Christianity, they recognize that the divine origin of the human being is not the earth, but is from the cosmos, and that the human being will evolve way and beyond this earth when the earth has fulfilled its mission and as a planet it falls away. There may have been some who talked like this, who felt like this, but I would say that the, the real initiates of the inner circle knew that they, their task was to work on earth and to help all human beings until all human beings were capable of going on to the next highest level. But I haven't done any historical research myself and I haven't been able to exchange to talk with my teacher very much about this to how it was, but in this whole phenomenon of the Qatar, there's some knowledge that reaches the public and a lot of knowledge that is retained inwardly and only known to the initiate. But I don't think it is as world remote as it sounds, because now with this lady, Imgard Dusak, for instance, she worked great, a great deal in education and they had very good schools in those days. I spoke of that, I think, before. I don't know if this is also confirmed by what you've heard, but apparently they had an education for everybody. And this education was, among other things, very practical. They learned about healing, about herbs. They learned social laws. They learned arts and crafts and whatever else. And she was very concerned with this and with the children, with the upbringing and very concerned with the social life. And this all suggests people who were not simply interested in getting away from the earth, but in reforming earthly life so that it's more a mirror of the heavenly life. So now we know that the Qatars were by and large defeated and brought to an end by the events of Montségur. Yes, they may have survived in other places, but this was really the great outer defeat of the Qatars. Montségur, some of you may have seen it in the south of France. There are other mountains there with other Qatar castles like Puylerand and Puyver and beautiful places, wonderful ruins, wonderful landscape. At Montségur there was a castle. They went up into these places, of course in a way to also to be safe from the armies of the church. They went up there for refuge, but also to cultivate their inner deep knowledge. These were initiation centers, centers of spiritual learning primarily. I don't think they were in the first instance places of refuge. In those days it wasn't so easy to get up a mountain and it was no simple task to besiege one of these mountain fortresses and get the people out. And on Montségur, at the time when the persecution of the Cathars was at its height, Many Qatars had taken refuge in this castle. They were very well supplied, they had their water systems, and they had their secret ways of coming down the mountain and penetrating through the besieging armies 
and going to the surrounding villages. The end, this is 1244, there was a great siege. The uh, crusaders, the papal crusade, really came out to defeat once and for all the Cathars. And the real reason was religion, of course, but the main reason really was that the king of France at that time, Philip the Fair, who was a very bad king, wanted the lands of the Cathars, Cathars, which were very, very fertile and beautifully cultivated. Again, it suggests that they weren't so simply withdrawn from the world. They had a wonderful agriculture, and to this day, the south of France is so beautiful and fertile because of the work they've done there. So he wanted these lands. So he had very good reasons for getting rid of these heretics, so to speak. Anyway, Montségur was besieged, but the Cathars were in such a position to remain there indefinitely and to renew their supplies. But there was a betrayal. I don't know any more about it except that I was told there was a betrayal. Somebody betrayed the way, if you like, how to get in. Somebody betrayed them to the papal armies and Morsevier was taken, was captured, the people were killed, they were burnt at the stake. Now, when it came to the point that they knew on Montségur that they were going to be defeated and they knew what was coming to them, this lady, uh, Irmengarde Dussac, was especially concerned with the children and there were about 200 children there. And also, among these children, she knew that there were some very special children and her concern was to save these children. And what she did was this, when the armies were approaching and these children were also in danger of being captured I assume she'd gathered them together in some way or other she illuminated and kindled all the inner light she had won through her spiritual development she created somehow out of her own being a blinding light and this blinding light blinded temporarily the soldiers round about. It was like tremendous flash of lightning. She somehow set herself on fire in a certain sense. The spiritual light that she had won, which we do win through spiritual practice and which then penetrates our whole body, she somehow enkindled in it, enkindled it, knowing full well that by doing so she not only would kill herself but would, as it were, kill the, that essence, that resurrection body that she had built up over many incarnations. That as a cosmic being, her existence would end. She did this. And in this blinding light, and this temporary blinding of the papal armies, the children could be got away. And it was actually the Templar Knights who then took the children away, and I think most of them were taken to Andorra, in the Pyrenees. She herself died in this process, but through this deed, it, it did not result in the disillusion, dissolution of her cosmic being, it resulted in the raising of her to the full heights of masterhood. She was raised into the circle of masters, and from that moment she was taken into the circle, and was uh, she became master of the green ray, the emerald ray, we say. And this is the energy which has specially to do with nourishment, with care of the earth, 
with education, with the care of children and so on. And that perhaps gives me a very good uh, point to say what is the use of the masters for us? What is their significance? If you are a person who works very much in this field, if your burning concern in life, your task in life is somewhere in this area, care of the earth, nourishment, children, education, then you have a natural affinity with the green ray. And you can greatly help yourself by connecting yourself with this energy of green, with this green ray, and thereby you gain a kind of link with this master being and can receive a very great deal of, I would say actually, very practical help, inspiration, strength. You see, even when you attain masterhood, there are many degrees of masterhood. And Irmengard Busak in this incarnation in the 12th century, that would have been her first ascent to masterhood. Whereas with Peter Dunoff or Saint-Germain, they had been masters for many, many, many centuries. And in each century they had reincarnated and regained their masterhood with the knowledge and the experiences of that particular century. So they would have had quite different capacities. A master can come back and take on very difficult tasks and, by any, by, and subject themselves to all kinds of human suffering. The masters are beings who have power of great sacrifice. Among the circle of the twelve disciples, John was possibly the youngest. He was a really young man, but on the other hand, he was the one that bore within him the highest spiritual development. And he's designated in St. John's Gospel, and he is the writer of St. John's Gospel, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now the meaning of this was not that Jesus preferred him to all the other disciples, but that the fullness of the love that emanated from Christ, St. John could receive in its fullness and reflect it back again. In other words, he could receive the full power of Christ into himself and make it inwardly his own and give it out again. So St. John had the task given by Christ to remain with human evolution to incarnate constantly until all human beings had fully embodied the ray of the I Am. This is encoded, as it were, in the last chapter of St. John's Gospel. He will not die, uh, Christ said to St. John, he will remain till I come again. Meaning he will remain connected with earthly evolution, incarnating, until every human being has been able to incorporate the Christ consciousness fully in themselves. And so St. John incarnated time and time and time again. But at that time then he lived to be a very old man and a lot is known about his life and how he lived on Ephesus, how he was exiled to the island Patmos and so on. And, and took Mary. Yes, and took Mary into his house. Mary the mother of Jesus was taken into his house. That is also recorded in St. John, the words of Jesus from the cross. I spoke in my very first lecture here about the experience of St. John under the cross. Uh, but I won't repeat that now. Again, I don't like to repeat these things too hastily. I invite you to go and get that page if you want to hear about that. 
St. John has incarnated then in every culture and he has worked very often and in unknown and secret ways throughout human evolution from that time on and his great task is to bring the I am ray, the I am consciousness fully into each human being. Then his cosmic task will have been completed and he can move on if he likes. But he has undertaken this, commissioned by Jesus Christ. And in each incarnation, he sacrifices, even dissolves his own being in order that he can be re-permeated at a higher level with the Christ force. A great example of this was in the, I think, the 11th or 12th century, described very vividly and very beautifully by Rudolf Steiner, and I've also spoken of that in this first lecture, I believe. Uh, of where he again as it were dissolved his being he took into himself the whole of earthly wisdom it was I can't describe this process now in more detail but it was a process whereby he, he dissolved everything that he was and received became a total vessel for the totality of human wisdom and remolded it into a new unity so that he could be given out again in a new way. If you really want to know more about that, you can do nothing better than read the lectures of Rudolf Steiner from Neuchâtel, The Mission of Christian Rosenkreutz. And this volume is contains two lectures where he describes this process. And more or less in each or in many of his incarnations, he undergoes such a process as he has again in this incarnation but this is a great subject and I have reserved that for next May when I come again and speak about the kings of Shambhala so I'll just say now that the king as it were the guiding spirit the one who shoulders the main responsibility is at the moment the one who was Saint John who was Christian Rosenkreutz, who was the Count of Saint-Germain and he is bearer of the violet ray and I wanted to say because of this enormous cosmic experiences he has other capacities than say a master who's only just in one incarnation become a master and perhaps he has quite different capacities nevertheless a master is a master in the sense that he has mastered himself and is in a state of total purity. I would like to say one more thing about the circle of the masters, the twelve. They are in a very special way a community and that means that they share a common consciousness. Although each has his own consciousness and store of knowledge and store of capacity, yet at the same time the consciousness of the other is totally open to him. They call this the Holy Spirit. They are one in the Holy Spirit. So as soon as one of them thinks an idea or realizes something, it is immediately communicated to the whole. All of them know it. It is a community totally without jealousy, with total respect for each other, with total love, and it is a model for the future human community. Again, this is something that gradually humanity can aspire to, this common consciousness 
Retaining our individual consciousness, we can nevertheless become perfectly at one with other human beings. This is again a possibility that stands before us now. We are at the threshold of all this higher development and we need this higher development in order to master the problems that lie before us. All these global earth problems which need to be seen as a whole, the spiritual future of mankind, all these problems are one problem of Mother Earth. These can only be solved now by human beings who attain a higher consciousness and work in free community with other human beings. Politicians will not solve it. Big business will not solve it. They're doing rather the opposite. But that in we that we try to work together in a brotherly, sisterly way with all other human beings, we also gradually raise ourselves to the possibility of this common consciousness, which was also there at Whitson in the time of Jesus. His disciples at the time of the Whitson, the Pentecost event, also achieved this unity in the spirit, at least for a moment. If you remember Whitson. There came a mighty rushing wind and flames of fire appeared above each of the disciples' heads and suddenly they found that they could speak other people's languages, they could communicate. This is all showing the future of humanity. But where was I? I was with Saint-Germain and the violet ray. Why the violet ray for our time? Because the violet is above all the ray, the energy of transformation. And it is the energy that penetrates most deeply into the earth. It is the ray of dissolving of forms, dissolving of old forms, old structures that are no longer valid. It is the ray of freedom, in that it dissolves away all that interferes with freedom. It is that ray which takes energies and dissolves them, transforms them, raises them to a higher level. So, if we want to work with the violet ray, we have to be very interested in transformation. Transformation of poison, if you like, into healing substance. If any way we want to work deeply in transforming earthly life, transforming evil energies, energies of war, aggression, we're wanting to see these energies become pure, good, helping energies, then we need the violet energy. And if we are centrally interested in the spiritual evolution of humanity, then we also work with the violet. And we can work directly with St. John Saint-Germain. I don't know if this would be a good point to sing you the melody of the violet ray. Oh, oh, oh.